Hello and welcome to the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and I'm excited to have you here for episode nine. This is going to be part two of our False Doctrines series. Dr. David Flatt, cardiologist just about, is going to be teaching on the topic of false gospels. So we have talked for five weeks about the gospel you missed in youth group and just summarizing the good news of Christianity, the idea that God created us and then sent His Son to justify us from our sin, giving us hope for eternity. So that is something that we have talked about that most Christians agree on, and yet there are still some things that Christians have created, um, some of them well-meaning, some of them not, that kind of compete with this gospel that we know. And so these would be false gospels. Some of these are popular, some of them are less popular, but I think you'll be familiar with all of them. So tonight David is going to summarize quite a few of these false gospels. I think you'll find it very interesting. I think you'll find it very illuminating. I hope you really enjoy it. All right, so again, my name is David Flatt. I'm a cardiology fellow. My third year, I'll finish up in June, and we are right in the middle of a series called False Doctrines. And so the idea here is what are things that our culture teaches or that the church teaches that most people think are true, but that shouldn't, that are not, but in fact are not true, in fact contradict in important ways basic Christian theology and biblical teaching. All right, so Kyle kind of started us off last week talking about what is doctrine, how do we identify true doctrine versus false doctrine, and then today we're going to pick that up with. Um, three different examples of what I would call false gospels. So gospels, we talked about what is the gospel at the beginning. And the, so the gospel is the, the story of Christianity, what it means uh, to, to be in relationship with holy God in spite of our sin because of um, the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So the gospel, the, the message of the church, the message of the Christian faith is you can be united to God through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the gospel. Unfortunately, Christian churches uh, often preach something that's not quite the gospel. Sometimes there's parts of the gospel in it. Sometimes there's things that you agree with in it, but aren't the gospel, right? And so we'll kind of maybe talk about a, a couple of examples tonight that can really kind of clarify what I'm talking about. But the point of tonight is, what are things that are taught as a predominant message from pulpits in Christian churches that are not the gospel? How can we identify those and why are these errors so important? So let's kind of start with the introduction here. This first point, point A, is something that's it's really important to me, and that is we want to be people who talk about what we are for, not just what we are against. Okay, So I think that's important. In the midst of a series called False Doctrines, where we're really focusing in and um, emphasizing the importance of identifying false doctrines, things that we're against. I never want to lose sight of what we're for, right? So as Christians, we've got a great positive story to tell, and I really want to help us not get trapped in to, uh, to a corner that I think non-Christians or people that are anti-Christian try to put us in, saying, well, you're against this, or you hate this, or you hate that. Of course, we want to make moral discernment as Christians, but ultimately we're, we are for something, and we're for loving God and loving people. And so um, I, I just want to lead with that. But right after we say that, I just want to point B here. Exposing error can be very important. Exposing error can be important. In fact, it's scriptural. So, uh, Will, you want to read First Timothy 4 here? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, that God could be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
What are you reading? Oh, is it should is the reference wrong? Should it be Second Timothy? Okay, so let's try Second Timothy. Maybe that'll make more sense. We're talking about unclean foods. I was like, what? <laughs> All right, my fault. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Right. So that's just Paul there encouraging um, Timothy to be somebody that preaches the word, who takes seriously the idea of correcting and rebuking and encouraging people with false doctrines. Because a time's coming when people will turn away from truth and turn aside to myths. So um, that's just an invitation to say, hey, we're not, we don't want to be negative people, but part of being a discerning Christian is recognizing false doctrine. So here's one of my favorite quotes. <clears throat> Um, maybe that's ever been said, and we'll talk about this a couple times during this series. This is by Martin Luther King. This is his letter from a Birmingham jail. If you haven't read that, I, I mean, you ought to read it. It's, I think it's one of the most important um, things written in the, like American literature. So, of course, Martin Luther King is arrested in Birmingham for um, protesting racial injustice. He's in jail. He writes this letter, and <clears throat> in it he says something interesting. He said, There was a time when the church was very powerful. In a time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. So think about that. King is imagining a time when Christians were bold in what they believed, who weren't scared uh, by the culture that surrounded them and didn't just react to the culture. So King is writing, of course... Uh, in the South, where there's a cultural air of racial injustice that is anti-Christian, right? So we know from the very beginning, um, everyone, every race, every tribe created in the image of God, scriptural understanding, there's no um, justification for racism for a biblical-believing Christian. But in the South, even in um, a church-attending community, you have this air of racism. So how was that possible? Well, what happened was Christians stopped acting like thermostats who were setting the cultural norms for society, just like the thermostat in this house is keeping us nice and cool. It's setting the temperature. But instead, we're acting like thermometers. They were just reacting. Oh, we live in a racist culture, so we'll kind of tolerate and maybe even endorse racism. Just like if we were in a house right now that was the exact same temperature as it is outside. And so if the temperature outside happened to be good, then we would be good. If the temperature was hot, we'd be hot. If it's cold, we'd be cold. That's what the church doing was doing. King goes on to say, But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. So it's easy for us to identify the error that King is so um, precisely identifying and attacking here. Why is that? Well, it's because for the most part, we don't live in a culture that is uh, dominated by an an ethos of racism, right? Of course, is, does racism still exist? Of course, are there still racist people? Yes. Are there even um, race, racist institutions and 
um, structural racism, yes, to an extent. But for the most part, we have improved in our tolerance of racism that we can identify racism when it occurs, right? So um, it's easy for us to look back and say, yeah, King was right. He saw, he kind of, he could kind of stand outside of culture and see the places where the church was being affected and becoming the same as culture. So the interesting question here is not simply to apply this to the sin of racism, but to apply it to our own current status. Because, of course, we don't live in 1955 Alabama, right? We live in 2017 America, Tennessee. So what are the things that our culture, everyone around us, assumes are correct and true, but that contradict biblical teaching? And if we're not careful, we'll just respond to what the rich and powerful say is, is true, what the people with the biggest megaphones teach, and we won't look to the Word, we won't look to the Holy Spirit to guide us in what we teach and what we believe. So that's, that's the fear tonight, that I think that on these three issues, that um, the people uh, that, that make our movies, the people that write our newspapers, the people that run our newscasts, um, have a certain way of viewing what's true, good, and beautiful. And if we're not careful, um, we'll listen to the most powerful voices instead of the most important voice, which of course is the Holy Spirit. So, all that being said in terms of introduction, I want to give a few brief caveats. So, the first thing is that there's a grain of truth in almost all false doctrines, which is why they're so scary, right? So, a false doctrine that's clearly false that you recognize from top to bottom there's no truth in it. Nobody believes that, right? So, almost every false doctrine's got a little bit in it that you recognize is true. The second thing I'd say is I've defined the three false doctrines that we're going to confront tonight, uh, the prosperity gospel, the social justice gospel, and the political gospel, in ways that are most effective to make the contrast that I want to make. Right? So in all three of these cases, I thought it would be the most helpful to confront extreme examples of false gospels. Um, that's where the, the theological danger most exists, and I thought it most helpful to identify it. I do recognize that there are people sympathetic to all three of these Gospels, care about political process, care about social justice, um, care about prosperity in life. Um, there are people in all three of these positions who would state their views more moderately than I'm going to describe them tonight, and um, could even state them in ways that were moderate enough that they wouldn't be heresy. But I'm going to state them tonight in extreme examples to make a point. So in defining these terms, I consulted uh, Theopedia, so you guys should look, go to that website, it's pretty cool, it's, uh, it's helpful, so it's a Wikipedia for theology. Then the Baker's Dictionary of Evangelical Theology, and, systematic theo and a systematic theology textbook called Theology for the Community of God. So I didn't just make this up, I'm coming from, this is actually what people who believe uh, these theologies, how, how some of them would describe it. Okay, so all that said as intro, let's jump into the first false gospel and uh, see if we can maybe make some sense of it. What I really encourage you to do as we're talking about this is think about the King quote and think, on this issue, is it possible that in my thinking and in my behavior, I'm being less of a thermostat, less of somebody with a bold, Holy Spirit-infused, courageous take in trying to affect our world, and more of a thermometer, somebody who just, man, everyone around me is saying to think about it this way, so I kind of do too, right? So as, as American culture becomes more secular, we're going to have to be more intentional and more willing to be bold and different as Christians. And so I think this is a good, especially in these three areas, is a good opportunity to identify, are you being a thermostat or are you being a thermometer? Okay, so the social justice gospel. So what, I'm going to define the social gospel. The social gospel is the teaching that the ultimate good news of Christianity, so ultimate is important there, 
is that Jesus has come as an example and teacher of an ethic that will bring about a more just world. The people of God can advance this gospel by modeling and advocating advocating for the social gospel in their personal, professional, and political lives. All right, I think that's a pretty good definition. So we're saying that the ultimate good news of Christianity, the, the gospel, what, what our message is, is that Jesus has come as an example and teacher of an ethic that will bring about a more just world. And as Christians, we can advance this gospel by advocating for personal, professional, and political changes to make the world more just. Okay? So why is the social justice gospel wrong? Why the social justice justice why the social justice gospel is wrong. Number one, it diminishes, it diminishes the essence and impact of sin. It diminishes the essence and impact of sin. So that blank there is sin. Sin is not merely the imperfect and unjust institutions of the world, but is the core identity of every human being who has ever and will ever live. So on a social justice gospel view, we're tended to point out greed, injustice, unfairness in the world and say and point out this is what needs to be rectified. But really what needs to be rectified is not in your life, the way that David needs to think about it is what needs to be rectified in the world is not just all the problems out there, but it's the sin that's right in the middle of my heart, right? So we're tempted, the way that our brains work, we're tempted to draw lines between rich and poor, people who grew up in this part of the world versus people who grew up in that part of the world, people who live on this part of town or or that part of town, people who do this sin or don't do that sin, people who drink, people who don't, people who smoke, people who don't. You know, we've drawn all these lines. Really, the line that matters is the one down our own heart, right? And so the social gospel tempts us to think about sin in a way that's not personal and not tragic. So ultimately, the problem is sin is going to separate us from God forever. Um, the ultimate consequence of sin is not inequality in a world of suffering, which are the, I think the problem the social gospel is trying to rectify, but the problem of sin is separation from God. Okay, so the second reason it's wrong is it misunderstands the incarnation. Misunderstands the incarnation. So according to the social gospel, Jesus came to provide teaching and serve as an example of a social and spiritual ethic. Right? And so the idea that the second person of the Trinity would become human, come to earth to serve as an example of how to live better and how to make the world more fair, that's blasphemy. That makes no sense. That would be the, the biggest overreaction in the history of the universe. Right to say, you know, there's inequality on on the planet. So let's send the second person of the Trinity to the Earth to rectify it, which would not be necessary, and it really doesn't make sense. And then third, I would say the social gospel belittles the cross. So again, the idea that the second person of the Trinity would become a man and allow sinners that he created to murder him in one of the most gruesome and painful methods of torture ever devised for the ultimate purpose of showing us how to live more ethically, improve social structures, and reduce inequalities is heresy. So it makes no, The cross makes no sense if the point of Christianity is to make the world more fair. Why, why are you on a cross? I guess that's goofy. Um, so that's why the social justice is wrong. Why, this, why the social justice gospel is theologically dangerous. So I'd say four things. The first is confusion. The social gospel confuses the fruit of the gospel with the gospel itself. Right? So gospel-infused people are passionate about justice, 
our passion about serving the poor, our passion about making the world better, but that's the fruit. That's what happens to spirit-changed people. We don't pursue um, the alleviation of poverty for its own sake. We pursue the alleviation of poverty because we're infused by the Spirit to live for something bigger than ourselves. So second is seduction. The social gospel is seductive because it's in in agreement with a culturally and politically powerful. So I think I really want to just pause here for about 30 seconds just make this point that I really believe is true. Part of the problem with the social gospel is we can preach it from our pulpits and it sounds attractive to both well-meaning, spirit-filled Christians who care about the poor, but also to the powers that be in society, right? So you could talk about the social gospel in the um, professor's lounge at Ivy League school in the boardroom at a um, major cable news network or out in Hollywood as the plot for a movie. And everyone would think that was great, right? Everybody would be clapping, yeah, that's right. Let's make things better, more equal. And so there's a temptation as Christians to lead with uh, the part of the gospel that our culture agrees with, which is not all bad, but if that's all we got, then we're missing the point, right? We're just, it's possible that we're holding back the real gospel and just telling the little segment of the gospel that our surrounding culture agrees with. And so I think that's really the risk of the social gospel, is it's seductive in a way that tempts us to hold back the things of Jesus that are offensive to culture, but the problem is some of those things are the most important. All right, third, I would say, is weapon, weaponization. The social gospel is easily weaponized politically and historically has been used by politicians to achieve power that is re- rarely used to advance a gospel-shaped view of society or justice. So if you see politicians talking about social justice, social gospel, I think it's often used in a way that's not helpful. I'm not saying always, but in a lot of ways I just think, man, I kind of wish they would leave kind of the Christianese out of their political speech, because I don't think that what they're talking about is the same thing uh, that the Bible's talking about. And then fourth, I would say sterilization. Sterilization. So the social gospel will not save a single soul. You will, the, you won't, the social gospel will not save a soul for eternity. And we shouldn't pretend that it will. So what we, ca- we can make hand out cups of water, make people's lives more comfortable. In fact, we're called to do that. Think about like um, Matthew 19, pass down a cup of water. But um, ultimately, what, what the gospel message is, is, is Jesus Christ and His atonement for our sins. And so if we miss that, we're kind of missing the whole point. So the biblical gospel is better than the social gospel, than the gospel of social justice, primi- primarily because it is so much bigger. While the social gospel says, here is how you can change social structures in ways that may make them more biblical, in, in ways that may, and you can change social structures in ways that will make them more just, the biblical gospel says, here is Jesus of Nazareth, who being both fully God and fully man, lived the life that we could never live, died the death that we deserve to die, and conquered the enemy that we could never defeat, so that the wrath of God could be satisfied and the justice of God would be preserved. In a blaze of glory at the apex of history sits the cross of Calvary where the suffering king hung. The justice of God as a good judge who punishes sin is on full display. The love of God who would stop at nothing to have you in his family roars across the ages calling you to himself. That is the gospel and it's the truest, biggest, and best news ever told. The gospel is better than the social justice gospel. So the second false gospel I want to talk about is the prosperity gospel. And I think this is damaging in, in different ways. 
And I think it's in kind of a different parts of our culture and different, maybe a different demographic, just as strong and just as powerful. You see a lot of social justice uh, blogging and preaching. You're going to see a lot of prosperity gospel uh, preachers on TV. You know, I know a lot of my patients that, you know, they're watching somebody preaching when I'm on rounds or whatever, thinking, man, this guy, <laughs> wish I could pick a different preacher <laughs> to, for, to be on TV right now. And so it, and I, I just think maybe in our demographic and kind of the, the segments that we run in, you may not see as much of this, but I just want you to know, like, it's out there and really powerful and it's really hurting lives. So let's define it first. The prosperity gospel teaches that health and wealth are always the will of God, and that faith, positive speech, and maybe most importantly, donations, will increase one's attainment of both. All right, so prosperity gospel teaches that health and wealth can be ob- obtained through faith, positive speech, and donations. So, at one level, doesn't God want us to be healthy and wealthy and happy? Well, I don't know. Is that, bibl- is that a biblical teaching, or is that kind of an American teaching? Let's think about it uh, for a few minutes here. So, why the prosperity gospel is wrong. So, the first point, it takes a few scriptures out of context while ignoring the overall teaching of the Bible. Okay, so a prosperity preacher would, would stand up and quote Matthew 7 and say, you know, and the Lord said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. You know, so you think, if you take that scripture and that's all you're teaching, well, then it sounds like, you know, God is this, the perfect Santa Claus. So you ask for an Xbox, you get an Xbox. You ask for to be healthy, you get healthy. You ask for wealth, you get wealth. Um, and so I do think you ought, we ought to admit there are some texts in the Bible that if you just look at that one verse, uh, there seems to be some teaching that would hint at God's uh, provision for health and wealth. But that ignores the fact that a central theme of discipleship is following I really want to make this clear. A central theme of Christian discipleship is following our suffering king into suffering for the glory of God. So uh, one of my favorite preachers said one time, do you want a safe life? And you just kind of pause, you think about that. If the answer to that question is yes, then stay away from Jesus. (laughs) Right? So Jesus is not calling you to a life of ease and pleasure and absence of suffering. In fact, just the opposite, right? So the, the, the people who have lived their Christian life the best in human history have all died like ugly, like beheaded, lit on fire, crucified upside down, crucified right side up, right? The, the people who have lived it right, who've, who've gone all in, they suffered in this world, right? So the idea that, that a Christian life is attained and perfectly lived, if you can exemplify a life that is absent of suffering, um, it's just unbiblical. So let's look at a, a couple of verses here. So 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Think about that. <laughs> like, put the, you see that on a coffee cup, <laughs> right? That, that's, that's not like your Christian coffee. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. <laughs> okay, John 15. But all these things they do will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. Hmm. So you're gonna, Jesus says, they're going to treat you like garbage, and they're going to do it in my name, right? So Jesus promised, like, persecution around the world, like Jesus said, it was going to happen, and it's happening. Then Acts 5.21 
That's Acts 5.21. It is. Uh, hmm. Let me see what my translation says. That doesn't seem... I think I gave you the... Yeah, I think I've got the wrong reference there. No, it's okay. Sometimes when you teach something for the first time, you mess up some stuff, so... <laughs> I mean, I've never done that to David. Sometimes I've never done that. <laughs> X521. Yeah, it's the wrong translation. So maybe 1521. Yeah, wrong verse, not wrong translation. <laughs> Let me look up the reference and I'll uh, we'll find it next time. But the point is, so there's a story that um, when um, Paul and Barnabas are arrested by the council. Then they're, they're whipped and stoned for, um, for their preaching. They come back and they, they leave the presence of the council. And then the, the text says, Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5.21 So this idea um, that there are these apostles that are suffering for the name of Jesus. And they come back and they're excited about it. <laughs> like, we suffered for the name. So we'll get, we'll get that verse to you. Um, but obviously I put the wrong citation there. Okay. 541. 541. Yeah. Will you, will you read it, Anna? Yeah. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. All right. Obviously my fault. Okay. So, the third reason the prosperity gospel is wrong is we do not give to get, but we get in order to give. All right, so that's, that's a biblical view of money. We don't give money for, for missional living to make disciples around the world, to alleviate hunger and suffering around the world. We don't give to those purposes in order that we'll get more. Right, that's central teaching of prosperity gospel. Plant, you know, like plant your seed, send me your donation, and then God will bless you with health and wealth. But actually, the, the Christian view of money is actually the opposite. We get, God gives us money, resources, talents, in order that we may give them for the kingdom. Right. So um, I've kind of made this point a couple weeks ago, but think about this. You're sitting in a room with some of the most blessed people in the history of the world. Right? So think about the collective blessings that are present in this room. Um, parents that have provided you with educational opportunities beyond what anyone in the, really in the history of the world has ever experienced. The idea that most of us got to take our, a decade off of life, just take your 20s off and go learn. Right? That's not how world history has been. Right? People, you know, people in their 20s have been you know, fighting wars, farming, um, sustenance living just trying to make it trying to like get to next week right we got to spend our 20s equipping and empowering our minds to help other people and truth be told to help other people in a way that we're going to be compensated far beyond um, money that we could ever spend on ourselves or should ever spend right and so what are we going to do with those resources intellectual resources time resources family and relationship resources and financial resources Right? Well, the biblical view of money is we're going to get those resources and we're going to give them back to a cause bigger than ourselves. We're going to make disciples around the world. We're going to find people that are suffering and hurting and we're going to alleviate that. We're going to find people that have never heard the true gospel and we're going to send people across the world to tell it to them. Right? So we're going to use what we get to give to something bigger than ourselves. 
So why the prosperity gospel is theologically dangerous. So here's why this makes me so mad, is it confuses the gifts from God for the gifts of God. Right? So God has blessed us in ways that are really cool. Right? Nice places to live, nice vehicles, nice clothes, great families. But that's not the ultimate blessing. Right? Those are gifts from God. The gift is God Himself. We get to be in relationship with our Creator. Here's maybe what's... Um, what can potentially, I think, cause the most anger, though. The prosperity gospel won't withstand the experiences of suffering, pain, and trials that accompany life in the real world. Right? So you go to the ICU right now at the VA and try to preach the prosperity gospel. Right? It, it, won't, it, it won't preach. You try to preach the prosperity gospel in um, the developing world where you've got women worried about how they're going to feed their children, right? It won't work. And the reason it won't preach is it's not true, right? The, the promise of Christian life is not that you'll be healthy and wealthy, but that you'll have something so much greater, relationship with your Creator forever, right? And often the attainment of that, the expansion of the kingdom, is accompanied by immense, intense suffering. And we should expect that because it's been promised to be that way from the beginning. But the preaching that distorts that, that says that we shouldn't expect suffering, that causes real damage to the true gospel. So why the gospel is better? While the prosperity gospel offers stuff that we don't need, the gospel of Jesus Christ offers us what we need most. Grace, hope, and God Himself. Alright, so that's definitely a frustrating teaching that's out there. Here's the third one, the political gospel. <laughs> that's, all, visiting. that's awesome. I think she's actually benefits from the prosperity gospel. She probably does, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Alexa. All right. That's great. All right, the political gospel. The political gospel teaches that the ultimate goal of Christian identity, organization, and action is to benefit, is to affect the political process in order to advance a preferred set of political priorities. Right, so I think we're kind of familiar with this way of thinking. So if you think that the Christian calling, at least ultimately, is that we should organize so that we can affect the political process to advance a view of the, of the world and um, civilizational structure, and that's the reason that Christianity and the gospel exists. Well, I, I, that's the political gospel, and that's heresy. So why is it wrong? Number one, the ultimate goal of the gospel is nothing short of God himself. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. The God is the goal of the gospel. Why, why should you believe the gospel? Why should you trust in Christ? Why should you be a Christian? Because you get God, right? Not because you get stuff. Not because you're going to make the world a better place. Not because you're going to get more Republicans or more Democrats or more independents elected. You should believe the gospel. You should be a Christian because you get God. And so reducing the, the gospel to... Um, a method to get your preferred set of political priorities advanced is blasphemy. So reducing the gospel to political ends is blasphemy. That's the blank there. <clears throat> Number two, there is much in the political world that Bible-believing Christians can and should disagree on. Right. So I do think that we can come up with um, a set of kind of political thoughts that I think most Christians should agree on. Right, we'll talk about some of those in later weeks. I think the issue of life and um, and ab abortion and how that affects life. I think I think we ought to be on the same page about that. And if you're not on that same page, that's fine. We'll talk about it in a few weeks and 
Um, maybe we can sharpen each other and how we're thinking about that. Uh, but there, there are some areas we need to be in agreement on. But there's a lot of areas that, man, there's not, like this is not in the Bible, right? So like what should marginal tax rates be? What should we do with a government debt? What should we do with entitlement reform? Should we have entitlement reform? What is just war? What is unjust war? Um, what should we do about... Um, well, I mean, you get the point. Like, we keep listing, I don't want to go on too, too long, but we can keep listing all these political questions. Well, I think you could be somebody that reads the Bible, that prays, that thinks hard about these issues, and we kind of disagree with each other, both being well-meaning. So if we say that the gospel is advancing this political party's ideology, and Bible-believing Christians can rightly come to different positions on these issues, then we're, I mean, we're, like, we're real confused, right? And the reason we're confused is because we're not preaching the gospel in the first place. So there's a, a um, famous quote from, from our movement that says, in, in, matters, um, in matters of essentials, unity. In matters of non-essentials, um, hold on. Do what? Liberty. It matters of essentials, unity. It matters of non-essentials, liberty. And all things, charity. And so what are they saying there? They're saying there are essential Christian doctrines that we need to be unified on. There's also some things that are not totally clear that smart, good-thinking people can defer on. Hold your opinion. I'm not saying there's no truth. I'm not saying you shouldn't think about it. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to... If you think marginal tax rates should be higher or lower, then vote that way. I mean, go to change.org and sign the petition, hashtag it, you know, like, go do that. that that's, a, that's not an unchristian thing to do. But let's have some liberty about it. Let's not pretend that in order to be a member at, you know, First Christian Church, you have to um, believe that this should be done with Social Security, right? That's not, that we should have some liberty about that. Then in all things charity, let's be, let's be loving towards each other, especially people who disagree with us on secondary and tertiary matters. Okay, I know we're running long here, <coughs> um, so, so let's try to land the plane. Um, <laughs> so our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Our ultimate citizenship is in the kingdom of God. So I'll, I'll say this. I'm proud um, to be an American. I think this is the greatest country in the history of the world. I think a lot of great things have happened because of America. But my primary identity is not as an American. And there's some, and so that I think there's some freedom in viewing things that way. So we can be honest about American history. Things like, man, America screwed that up. We got that wrong. Um, because ultimately, my identity, my future is not as a citizen of the United States of America. It's as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so when, we, when you see people confusing that, I think it's really ugly. and leads to kind of some both broken churches, broken theology, and broken politics. Because politics is not meant to be um, kind of a theological system. So, why the political gospel is theologically dangerous. Number one, the political gospel is deeply disunifying. I think you can see that in um, the way uh, of politics in America now, right? If you, get, you can get so absorbed in these political questions that you think that everyone who disagrees with you is either evil or stupid, right? You see, like, that's like the theme of, if we turn CNN right now, that would be going on. There'd be one guy on each side of the screen or one girl on each side of the screen, and this person would be saying this person's evil, and this person would be saying this person's stupid, and they're going to do it all, they're going to do that all night. And that's just not true. Well-meaning, good, loving people can disagree on political questions. And so the, this idea that you can't have disagreement in political thought is really disunifying. To a church, it's supposed to be, I think, culturally and politically diverse. I think that's something that we want to be. Number two is politics is seductive. 
So if you've ever been involved in politics or think about how you were thinking during the last election, like, man, that stuff can suck you in. And it seems like, I know we've all been there, sometimes it seems like this is the most important thing in the whole world. And this, like the world's going to end if this election does or doesn't go the way I think it's going to go. And it's just not true. Like, God's got the whole world in His hands, right? And He's got a mission that's so much bigger than who's going to be living on Pennsylvania Avenue in the next four years or who the senator from your state's going to be. And so I think because politics is so seductive, this political gospel can really grab us and pull us into something that, that's less than what we're meant to be advocating for. Number three, the, the political gospel can result in toxic ethnocentrism and nationalism. Right, So I think as opposed to these, the idea of patriotism is a healthy virtue. The idea of, of loving the ideas of the place you came from. Right, So the idea is, uh, I think there's things about the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution that are beautiful ideas that I love. But that is opposed to this idea of ethnocentrism and nationalism, which is the idea that you love the people who are like you, that have the same blood as you, the same pigment of skin, or who came from the same geography as you, so who grew up on your soil, right? And so that is anti-biblical, anti-Christian, and sinful. And the gospel of um, politics tempts us towards that, to valuing people who have similar um, racial backgrounds or similar geographic backgrounds as more important or more valuable in the world. And that's just not a Christian way of viewing the world. So we can be patriotic, but Ethnocentrism and nationalism is sinful, and I think the political gospel really exposes us to those sins. Fourth, why is this so dangerous? Misprioritizing the place of politics in the Christian life prevents a civic rebuilding of identity, values, and thoughts that Christians need to play a part in. So I don't think, this is no like revelation tonight, like our political system in America is broken right now for a lot of reasons that we're not going to all unpack tonight but it needs to be rebuilt in a way in, and it needs to be rebuilt in the way that we think about our identity our values and our thoughts but if we're preaching this political gospel garbage that we can't really participate in that conversation because we're presenting politics as gospel as opposed to a thoughtful re-undertaking of what it means to be a citizen of whatever country we're in and so I think if, as, we, if, as we place politics too high in our value structure, it makes both politics and our value structure worse, right? So if you want to be a better American, what you need is not more politics. You need to be a better neighbor, and we need to rebuild communities and, and re-understand what it means uh, to be uh, fellow citizens. So why the gospel is better? The gospel is ultimately better than the political gospel because of honesty. One of the most troublesome aspects of the political gospel that stands in stark contrast to the biblical gospel is dishonesty. At its core, the political gospel says that given the right policies, prescriptions, politicians, and programs, we can fix our problems. That's bull. Anyone who believes that has never read a history book. Every political system ever devised, especially the ones that concentrated political power, has resulted in lying, cheating, greed, murder, injustice, hunger, and war. The political gospel would have you believe that each of those times the problem was the system. A believer in the political gospel says things like, have you ever heard this, capitalism makes people idolatrous and greedy, or socialism makes people selfish and lazy. So that's, if you're a political gospel thinker, that's kind of how you would talk. The truth that the biblical gospel tells us is that people are already 
idolatrous, greedy, selfish, and lazy. These are problems that no political order, from a Randian laissez-faire society to a Marxian communist state, can ever fix. Our problem is not the political structures outside of us, but the sin within us. The beautiful honesty about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it both tells us the truth about who we are and provides us with an avenue of abundant, here are the blanks, mercy and undeserved grace. So stay informed, courageously hold to the truth, and yes, vote, but don't ever confuse those actions for the gospel. The gospel is not about the activities of a hundred rich senators or nine, or nine Ivy League lawyers or one Manhattan billionaire. It's about a baby in a manger, a cross on a forgotten hill, an empty tomb that changed the world. The gospel is better. So two years ago, <clears throat> I had a patient at the VA. Um, he was a patient that I met in a way that neither one of us would have preferred. He was a foul-mouthed veteran who had been baptized into Christ as a teenager, but he had almost nothing to do with Jesus since then. From drink to drugs to women, he had lived a deeply selfish life that none of us would have been proud of. But on this day, he was a little less rough and a lot less tough. His cough had turned painful and his spit had turned bloody. I'm sure that many of you know how this story is going. His CT scan showed two lungs full of cancer with metastatic spread to his colon and his liver. For you guys in dental school, not medical school, that is stage four cancer. The, prog the prognosis is death in a few weeks to months, and now I was walking down a quiet VA corridor on a late November morning to tell him the news. As I walked in with as much compassion as I could muster, I said, as I could muster, I looked into the patient's steel eyes that showed no emotion. He didn't utter a word until I had finished telling him the news. After I finished telling him he had metastatic cancer, he said, how much time do I have, doc? I said, I can't be sure, but this will likely be your last Christmas. Okay. With that two-letter word, he turned over in his bed, inviting me to leave his room. I simply couldn't yet, so I asked, Sir, are your affairs in order? I don't have any affairs to put in order, Doc. I ain't got no money, no wife. What about spiritually? It's too late for me. When I asked him what he meant, he explained that he had spent his life in deep sin, hurting almost everyone he had met, damaging almost every relationship he had ever been in. He felt like he was at a point in life that God no longer could save him. So we pulled out the Gideon's Bible and the little side desk and turned to Matthew 20. So this is a story of the workers in the vineyard. So you guys know the story from VBS if you grew up going to church. The story is these people come to work at like 6 in the morning. They work all day. And then, well, they start at 6 in the morning. And then about noon, the owner of the vineyard goes and finds some more workers and has them work. Then at like 2 in the clock, they find some more workers, has them work. Then at 5 o'clock, he goes and finds another group of workers, has them work. At 6 o'clock, it's quitting time, time to pay. And, he, and the owner of the vineyard pays everyone the same amount. So obviously the point of the parable is it doesn't matter how long you've been faithful. If you're a sinner in need of grace, you reach out for the mercy that comes from the blood of Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. So I told him that story, and in that moment, Mr. Adams made a decision. He got what he needed most. He got the gospel. 
He got the love, grace, and forgiveness made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He got what he didn't deserve. That Christmas, Mr. Adams reunited with his son, and together they celebrated his last holiday season. His short life, like all of ours, ended like a mist. After less than eight decades on this side of eternity, where he after less than eight decades on this side of eternity, he slipped into eternity where he faces billions of years of existence. It hardly needs to be stated that what he needed most as his life ended was not a prosperity preacher, a social justice advocate, or a political organizer. He didn't need a nice car, a fair shot, or a revised political order. What Mr. Adams needed was exactly what was given through Jesus Christ, the true gospel. So I want to thank David for teaching an excellent lesson. I've heard David teach probably 20 times or so over the last few years, and this might be the best I've ever heard him teach. It was really great, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, a couple things that we discussed after the, uh, the podcast was paused was the idea of the social justice gospel. I think maybe that's the most popular, at least in the circles that, that I run in, um, and I think it's because it is close to the truth um, you know, there's, like David said, there's always partial truths in what, are, what we call false doctrines or false gospels. Um, and so it's true, and this is a popular idea, that Jesus came um, to sort of advocate for the less fortunate or the less than. And his mission and his life and his ministry was about helping people that were less than, or in a different way, redeeming those who were lost um, on earth. The problem with that is, is that while that's true and that Jesus spent time around sinners and he helped people um, who you know, a Pharisee would not have helped or would have been open to helping, that was not the only reason that, get, that Jesus came. It was not the main thing, and it isn't the main thing. And so like David said, and said it better than, than I could, is, is that um, it, it diminishes the essence and impact of sin, it says. Um, it, it, it sort of ignores uh, the, the point. Is, is that you can give uh, someone justice on earth, but if you're not giving the ability for justice for eternity, it's missing the point. Um, and so it's, it's easy for us to get kind of caught up in these ideas. Like David said, it's easy to be someone that is a, a fan of the social justice gospel because it's popular right now. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's true or that it's the whole truth of the gospel. Um, one thing that was also said was is that each of these three Gospels, so we have the social Gospel, we have the prosperity Gospel, and the political Gospel, I would argue that they're all ways of kind of obscuring or obfuscating uh, the true Gospel. And so the true Gospel is uncomfortable and inconvenient and difficult, and it's time-intensive, and it will change your life. Whereas each of these Gospels in some ways can make your life better and there's certainly more passive ways of accepting Jesus. And so you can create a Jesus that sort of fits into the life that you already want to have or that's culturally acceptable and call that Christianity or call that gospel or call that the truth when in fact it's only maybe part of the truth. So I hope this is good. Also, as David said, it's, this is not something where we want to just be against things. We certainly want to be for things. And so what we're for is, to the best of our knowledge and the best of our understanding, through study and prayer, 
is what the actual gospel is and what Jesus actually came for, what his mission on earth was, and why God sent him. That's what we seek to understand, and hopefully by studying maybe ways that that has been warped and maybe made into a false gospel, we better understand the true gospel. So anyone who's out there listening, anyone who came, really grateful for you. I hope it was a highlight of your week. I hope it meant a lot to you, and I hope it, uh, it produces fruit for you in the rest of your life. Um, we will be back next week. I'll be teaching on a topic called In Blog We Trust, which is on Christian bloggers and Christian authors. I think it'll be an interesting topic and a real nice counterpart to this study of false gospels. We'll be talking next week on the people who kind of teach or perpetuate these false gospels. So I think that's kind of an interesting, like I said, counterpart or other side of the coin to this lesson. I hope you're doing well. I hope to see you next week. Have a great week. Bye-bye.